Adam back there in the background, he's he's our first first live audience. So actually, Mariana was was uh, there when I did Salty Donut. Mariana, and my publicist was she she stayed for well, it. Pretty soon you'll do this so, in front of a live audience. I know, right? So, well, Daniel, just first, I want you to just kind of tell people who you are because uh, you know this for me is 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 even me getting to know you even more, which I, so far I've absolutely loved. Uh, getting to know you and um, I had the privilege of sitting with your daughter and you know I just uh, I just listened to my pastor talk on the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and I could instantly (laughs) tell that you did something right because your daughter is amazing also got to meet your son in New York he seemed amazing too so I know I know that means a lot to you from a kid's standpoint but just first and foremost Give a little bit of background of who you are. How do you ended up in this chair? <laughs> let's, let's let's be really clear. <clears throat> you can give me a lot of credit. You're going to have to give my wife, Mary, even more. Okay. So, I have not had the privilege of meeting Mary you yet. You will. You definitely And I'm will. certainly excited because I know it takes two. And like, to your point, probably more than her than you. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I had some positive All influence. Right. So look, I grew up upstate New York. I mean, I'm a little different than a lot of people. I not only graduated from the same high school that my dad graduated from. I graduated from the same high school that my grandfather graduated from. So three generations, small town. Yeah, Yeah. there's your legacy right there. I mean, it was, you know, I'm a small town kid, right? That basically never went more than a hundred miles away from, you know, where he was born. My grandparents either lived in Elmira, New York, where I'm from, or they were in Syracuse. And Syracuse to me was the big city and that's where we would go on vacation. So that's kind of the universe that I knew. Yeah. And you know, Elmira is just a small town. And you know, when the time came for me to go to college, I basically got to choose from any of the state university campuses that I wanted to go to. So I went to Binghamton and as most uh, parents were doing back then, they influenced their kid to try and go into medical school because that's the way that you could write a bigger ticket and you know, take good care of yourself. Right. And then I immediately realized when I was in college that I did not have what it takes to be, (laughs) you know, a doctor. So I was taking economic classes along the way, really enjoyed them, had a couple of professors that were from University of Chicago. And I decided since I was graduating at a period of time when the last major recession was other than the financial crisis was brewing back in the early 80s, that it would be a whole lot smarter for me to go to business school. Okay. Right. So I went to business school at Chicago and I met a lot of people that were way more sophisticated than I was. Like I didn't even know what a dry cleaner was for other than the place you went to, to rent your tux for the prom. (laughs) So I meet these kids that, you know, they're getting their shirts pressed. Right. I go, why are you doing that? They might come right out of the wash and they're fine. I didn't realize they made shirts 100% out of cotton. Right, mine, right. Were, mine were like those 65% polyester <laughs> blends, right? So I learned pretty quick uh, what the real world was more about. And then I immediately recognized I didn't have what it takes for Wall Street. I didn't like those kind of guys. Okay. So I was going to get a job and then, you know, opened up the door that well, in Chicago, I know what, know what a big city is about. I tried desperately to try and figure out how I could get to the West Coast and get a job offer there because I thought that would be pretty cool. No one would even fly me back for an interview. But I did get a job offer in New York at NBC. And I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. Um, So I went to New York. It's 1984. My first job, which is going to sound incredible, was working on the 1984 World Series. 
Amazing. So it was the Padres were playing the Tigers and I got to do all kinds of stuff that was really, you wouldn't need a person for today because it was getting tickets ready for all the production people and where they would go and how they would get there. And it was really, really crazy work, but it was an interesting place to be. As time went by though, I was there for two years. It really wasn't, I realized early that, that I'm not, in, when you're in that industry, mm -hmm. you're either, you're either a producer, you're a director or you're talent, right? I'm what really was a finance guy in an entertainment business. And that really, you know, you realized soon you wanted to be where the revenue was. Right. That's really how you drove, um, you know, yourself. And so what did I do? I said, look, I have some great stories I could tell about some of the guys that I worked with. And I don't know if you want me to go into one that really sort of changed my mind and why I needed to leave. Um, yeah, I mean, let's 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 dive in. So, so. so I'm working with a production crew up in Buffalo. I was on the jet. I went from NBC baseball to football. When okay. When baseball was over, I went to football. And I was assigned to the Jets, and NBC was covering the Jets. So we had a game up in Buffalo. And I am, um, I was a unit manager, which means I took care of all the mundane stuff that goes into a production, making sure the cameras were in the right place, that the engineers stayed within what their union allowed for them to stay away from, you know, how far they had to travel to the game, um, to the making sure that one of our broadcast uh, broadcasters had the right beer available to him when we did the meet, the pre-meeting the night before the game, right? right? It was no mystery, by the way, when you ever see a camera, and why it's focused on one receiver, it's because the coaches said to the production crew the night before, hey, third and long, we're gonna look for Wesley Walker. I got you. Right, things like that. So you so, almost got a script beforehand. There's a, a lot more, there's a lot more of that going on than you might think. I mean, yeah. obviously the players and the coaches can call audibles, right. but there are some guidelines as to what we think we might do in a certain circumstance. So anyway, we're doing this game. Um, I'm assigned to the producer and that's who I work for. So literally the night before the game, um, he's reading us the riot act, like how we're supposed to behave in the bar that night and all the things that, you know, we needed to pay attention to. And you're now in the place where, you know, the jets are staying and all the people from Buffalo are going to be at this bar because everybody wants to rub elbows with, you know, the New York folks. And he goes, maintain decorum, just be professional. Right. And literally an hour after dinner, we go to the bar. He's had like three cocktails already and he's passing tickets out to anybody that walked by. Like, so he didn't follow his own <laughs> advice his at own all. Rules. And I go, wow, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Next day we're in the truck. By that point, the game is started and I'm really, my day is over really, um, at least during the game. So it's a really crappy day outside and it's snowing, I think, and, or it was, maybe it was just cold, I can't remember exactly. But anyway, I'm in the truck, and the producer looks at me and goes, Dan, can you get me a Coke? Well, it's my job to do that, so I went back into the stadium where we have our little setup. I get the Coke, I bring it back to him, I put it down in front of him, he looks at it and he goes, oh, I meant the Diet Coke. Oh, wow, and he's he one of those like, guys. Yeah. So what I realized, okay, so this is a long story. To make the long story short, was I realized I was gonna work with people like this. Let me go at least try Wall Street because if I'm gonna deal with people like this that I didn't think I would deal with other than going to Wall Street, mm. if I could succeed in Wall Street, I could get paid for it. Nice. So legitimately, that's when I decided well, I'm gonna give great, Wall Street. Uh, you know, like you, you it was a great uh, moment right there. Like you, you, because a lot of people would just take it and just stay 
but you you identified something that that you knew you had to pivot and go do something else you like know, instantly like you know what it's really important i think one of the things i think of and i've said this to my kids and you've talked to hillary it's like when you're dealing and you're only responsible to yourself you can make choices that are a little bit more risky mm-hmm. there's not somebody else that's going to depend on the choices you make in order to like have a livelihood so if you're going to take risk take it early yeah take it exactly. early and, and 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 challenge yourself yeah. because once you have a family and what have you it gets harder to make riskier decisions right that's a great point um so when we were in new york uh we were having breakfast and you, and you told me just a fantastic story about when you were younger and i really thought that it resonated with the no days off philosophy and even a little bit of legacy like it was just a tremendous story can you go back to your it was high school right yeah it was high yeah school. go back to your high school days i know we're taking it pretty far we're back we're going way right? back we're going way back we're going um, way back i was driving a ford granada back then okay i don't even know what that is so that, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. exactly um but i i just the story i i was I was, uh, let's just, let's just go back to that because, uh, I would love for you to tell me again and tell our audience that story because uh, again, the, uh, things that came from that, like obviously may have actually that, and, and, and I think people will understand when you tell it is probably why you made the decision you made, you know, because it was in you already, you know? So anyways, no, elaborate it's, it's on that. It's true. I mean, I think that, you know, so. I'm a junior in high school, right? I'm 125 pounds soaking wet and legitimately I couldn't imagine any girl was looking at me anywhere, <laughs> right? So I asked my parents on my 17th birthday um, if they would buy me a set of weights. So wait a minute, at 17, you weighed 120 pounds? 125. 125 pounds, yes. all right. I think I weighed that when I was in like second grade. So. <laughs> Yeah. When I was 17, I was 220 pounds. Yeah, uh, let's just be really clear. The football coaches weren't looking at me, <laughs> right? They were they, they weren't yeah. looking for me to do anything. Um, so I realized I gotta, wanna, I gotta look better. I gotta do something. I mean, I'm just nothing. So I said, let me let me get weights. This was in the days before real gyms were anywhere. The, right. the high school had a universal, and the only other place you could work out was going to the Y. Okay. Right. And that wasn't an easy thing for me to get to. So I, I said, let me build a gym in my basement. Yeah. So legitimately, they bought me weights, the old school kind, you know, with plastic around cement. Oh, yeah. Remember those? And yeah, I of course. Bought, I, bought, I bought a bench that, you know, did an incline or flat. And I just started buying different pieces that I could start putting together a gym, a yeah. curling bar. I built my own lap machine, went to the hardware store, bought pulleys and pipes and built a lap machine. I love it. In the basement. So... I built a gym in the basement and I lived there. I started doing those protein shakes, the soy protein back in the day. You would have loved it. I took a mayonnaise jar, right? I filled it up with some ice cream, raw egg. Literally, so like Rocky style. Literally, like, yeah. literally like high C, high sugar stuff. Yeah. And I stirred in all this soy protein and I would do one of those like every day. Yeah. I work out before school. I work out after I got home. And during the summer, I even doubled up on that. So by the time I went back for my senior year in September, I had gained 25 pounds. Of muscle. Of muscle. Yeah. I was, I actually like, hey, I yeah. can do this. The girls were you know? watching now. They were watching, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and not that 
so many of them started knocking on the door, <laughs> but you know, it was a little bit easier. It built my self-confidence up. But it made me realize if you put your mind to something, when you realized early in your life that when there's something you want, when you go at it with a lot of vim, vigor, and gusto and, and dedication, much like what you're trying to do and teach people and help mm -hmm. them, it goes a long way to teaching your self-confidence. Like when you can do one thing right, when you can set one goal that's not something you just wake up with, right. that you actually have to work at to the whole no days off thing, I never took a day off from yeah. working out. And you were, you, you were committed to the process and it was three months, right? Because it was the whole summer. I started in April. Okay. So April, April. May, June, July. Uh, yeah, four and a half months. So four and a half months of like literally two a days, eating the same thing every day, doing the same thing. And you built it yourself. So that had to give you a lot of confidence too, just in the fact that you created something to create something. That's right. You know, like I thought that that was really no, cool. I mean, That's that kind of like what I hear is like, it's like not only did you build this new body, but you also created the, the the place to do it in. And I just find that to be really cool too, so. Well, I mean, it was real, it's with such a confidence builder. Yeah. Like when you get people, look, I've done your workouts, I think I told you this morning, I think there were 40 people in the class and I'm sure I was number 40 uh, on the list. Of <laughs> hey, you're in the room, so that's all that matters. <laughs> so sometimes it's just about showing up. Yeah. But I'll tell you something, you teach people how to think about themselves. And it starts with your mind and your body, mm -hmm. right? And if you can get them both working in harmony, when your mind tells your body what to do and the body responds, it reinforces it. And you're all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're moving forward. Right. And I think that that's something that is obviously evident in what you're trying to do. And I think also just the take home too is like at a young age, like to all the, you know, and I don't know if any 17 year olds are actually listening to us old heads talk, but if they do come across this stuff and parents that have younger kids, like, it can happen at a young age. Like your, your, your choices can happen at a young age that will affect you later on. And by making the wrong decisions and the wrong choices at a young age can affect you tremendously That's as right. you get older. So to me that those four months probably did more for you than, than anything else at that, at that time, you That's know? Right. And obviously you had to do other things to get to where you are today, but, but it, it certainly to me, was like a foundation of the man that you are today, you know, just by doing that alone. Well, I mean, but you, and you found, or at least I found that it repeated itself. So mm. I went to Chicago, like I mentioned, I'm from a small town, from a small unit, well, maybe it's a bigger university today. And I'm with all these Ivy League kids and everybody else. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if I really belong here. And then all of a sudden, you know, you take the same test they do. You know, you're in the same class as they are. Mm. And all of a sudden you realize you do belong in this room, right? You keep teaching yourself over and over again why you should be in that room. And I think that's something you take into life everywhere, yeah. right? It's, it's like, what are you worthy of? Test yourself, find out, know where you can go with right. what you have. And as long as you have the dedication, you can make yourself better just about anything anyway. Yeah, it's the decision to dedicate to something yeah. and to stick to it. That's right. Like that's another thing too. I think people don't do often is they don't stick to something. Like once you try something, don't give up after a month. Like I feel like everything now is so instant. You know, it's instant gratification. It's instant this. It's Uber Eats. It's Uber. It's everything's like right there for that's you. Right. That when you're trying to lose weight or build muscle or start a business or or be in a relationship that you want everything to happen overnight and that's just not realistic you know 
No, it's, it's, it's true. Look, I try, at least I try to think about my philosophy is I don't like to spend a lot of time doing something that I can't get myself better at, right? I'd rather find something or one thing or two things, dedicate myself to trying to become really good at those things. Yeah. Like the only thing I've ever done over and over again and I've never gotten any better at is golf. <laughs> just doesn't well, work. Well, it's the hardest sport in the world. So. <laughs> you know, I've tried and I just doesn't know. doesn't surprise me. I know I'm never going to put my 10,000 hours in on that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure even if I did, I might not get any better. I don't know. Adam, we got to call Gail. Maybe Gail can help this situation. <laughs> So, um, well, I want you to lean into a little bit about like your, so I know you recently retired, but you were obviously, um, and what's the, what was your title before? Like, well, I was, I worked at Bear Stearns first where, Bear okay. where I met Adam, obviously. So, so let's talk. I want to see the correlation between this no days off philosophy of how you guys apply that to finance and in your world versus, you know, the fitness and the beverage world or whatever, like, because I, I, Adam and I talk about all the time that there are a lot of correlations. Uh, um, there was a, a Warren Buffett quote. What was it, Adam? Yeah. Consistency compounds results. So Adam always talks to me about how there actually is a correlation there between being consistent with your health and also being consistent with uh, with uh, investing or finances and things like that. And I think a lot of people, again, goes back to everyone's waiting to hit the lottery, right? right? Like, you know, let me invest in this. And then two months later, I make 10 times my money. And that's just, that's not really a good way to think about investing and think about your money. So um, lean into that a little bit because well, I'm actually really interested in that too. So, well, there's two ways to think about this. One, I'm going to talk a little bit about how you conduct your business. And then we'll talk a bit about financing and, and Warren Buffett because yeah. he's, totally a hero to me. So one of the things when I when I came in um, to the business, I was on the sales side. And one thing I know you can't do is you can't rush a relationship with a client, right? You build trust, you build this working relationship and it takes years until somebody's willing to like, A, trust you a little bit mm -hmm. and trust you a little bit more and then trust you a lot. And you know, when you violate any of that trust, it's like, it's over. It's over. You get yeah. one chance to Especially screw with up. people's money. Like, yeah, I mean, it's so, a very sensitive subject. So I took what I talked about before and said, hey, look, if I'm going to succeed, I need my customers to actually try to not do a trade with me, to try and not do business with me. You know, I didn't want to give them any excuse to go somewhere else. So I really tried to leverage all the strengths that we had in our firm with the needs I knew my clients would have and really make it hard for them not to do business with us. So that worked out really well. I went from I went from a nobody in a training class to a senior person in 7 years. And, and what what were some strategies there? So cuz you if I'm hearing you correctly, you're, right. you're saying you didn't want them to give you your money. Like you were trying to make it very hard for them to invest no no you? i no i want no, i needed to earn it That's earn their need, trust i needed to earn their and then trust. what and was some not, ways you, ways you did that you know what you you even when you know they're not going to do something with you you give them an idea you give them okay. something to remember that you actually paid attention you asked for work no one else wanted to do okay you stayed late at night in our world back then running their portfolios when you knew the guy from goldman sachs might not be doing that so you earned what you had by being better at what you were doing than others. Okay. And I tried to make that sort of evident to the clients I built. I'll give you a funny, you want another 
sort of no, ironic story. Yes, yes, definitely. So there was a big bank in Ohio that I got assigned, I don't know, maybe three years into the business. And I went out to Columbus and I met the senior portfolio manager and we hit it off. And she introduced me to her portfolio managers and I hit it off with two of them. And then there was another one that wouldn't give me the time of day. I mean, literally nothing. So I started doing really good business with, you know, the senior manager and, and her two underlings. Yeah. And the other guy, I remember he picked up my phone once and then basically hung up on me. All right. So sometimes, you know, you know, you're not going to win at everything, but you keep trying to do the same right things. So anyway, about six months later, I call up and they tell me Steve's no longer here. I'm like going, yay, yeah. right? They put a new person in that spot and I started having a decent, you know, go with this guy and I'm thinking everything is great. Then I got one of the greatest surprises of my life. Maybe another three months later, Steve, the guy who never returned a phone call, basically calls me up and I, I think I misheard like, okay, it's Steve on the, on the phone. Right. I'm like, why is he calling me? never talked to me once before like what's going on here i pick up the phone he's there he goes i want you i'm at this new place i want you to be uh my coverage i want i want you i'm like yeah. steve i don't i don't get it i go well, I, I, like you wouldn't return a phone call for me but you don't know why i didn't return a phone call from you he goes i always thought you were really smart but i hated my boss and my boss told me i had to do business with you and as soon as she told me I had to do business with you and I don't like her, then I don't like you because I don't want to make her look good by doing business with you. So he became my biggest client. And if you had asked me at that moment in time, would that be the case? My handicap on that would have been zero. Right. Well, but I did all the right things yeah. and he knew what I had. And you don't even know why somebody doesn't choose to do that. Exactly. And to me, that's what I've actually learned that recently is that you can do everything right on your end but you often don't know what's going on with the other person absolutely like true. you don't know so it could have nothing to do and then you know we always think it always has to do with us right because right. we're the ones trying to get the business or we're the ones trying to close the deal but oftentimes it has zero to do I with know. us and we're that's such a prime example of and, that and you know what made me realize it reinforced again do the right thing enough times you're going to get paid back and do the right thing anyway. Anyway. Yeah, so I, totally I think that oftentimes people don't do the right thing because of the reaction that they get. So then they change because of the response or the reaction. Stay true to who you are. That's right. Stay true to doing the right thing because either a, it wasn't meant to be or B it comes back around. Like eventually a lot of times our nose in the beginning, is just because it's not the right timing. That's right. And then eventually doors open and it is the right time. And it could be with that very same person that closed the door originally. No doubt about it. That was one episode that just proved that exactly what you yeah, just said no, happens. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's, I, more people need to hear those kind of stories because I'm telling you like, and I'm guilty of it. I've been very guilty of it. Is one thing that you don't do in business and in life and it, it don't burn bridges because of something not working out. Like 
always understand there's another perspective. There's there's other things happening. I mean, somebody could be going through a divorce. You don't even know that, or or their kid yeah. dad, like anything. Like you, you do not right. know. So um, it's that that was great. I'll get one other little yeah. sideline to that. So you know, I went to pretty good school for finance and you know learned a lot of great stuff at Chicago. But the thing I remember the most, we took I took this one HR class, right, human resource class, and it. In that class, one of the days, they played this old film strip. I mean, literally something made in the 1950s. And it was a black and white factory floor kind of setting. And it was about how you would manage things on a factory floor. Okay. And motivating people and dealing with people. And the name of the film strip was called What You Are Is Where You Were When. And what resonated so much to me on that one, which is something that's always stayed with me, Whenever you meet someone, whenever you talk to somebody, they are a product of where they're from, the values that they grew up with, mm. and all the influences that they've had. So for you to sit there and judge people, you don't know where they've been. Exactly. Right? And, and the more, and the whole point was, as a manager, and this has always helped me as a manager, was if I could actually look back and understand who you were, I might be able to understand your motivation. I also might be able to understand what's blocking you from being better, right? Right? Because when you listen and you ask questions, you are a much better manager. You're a much better motivator. Definitely. And you know what? You're more effective in almost yep. everything that you do. And then people respect you for taking the time to understand them. Yep. Find that origin story is like kind of right. you know it's exactly like exactly right because everybody comes from somewhere. Everybody has learned something from someone, and and then oftentimes they haven't learned things because they didn't have certain people in their lives. Like a lot of people don't grow up with a two parent home. You That's know? right. And, and these are things that if you don't ask questions then you don't know, and then you start. I always say in our, in our business that one of the worst things you can do is assume and exp and have false expectations. So right. don't assume, ask questions, right? Don't have expectations, communicate. It's like, you can get so much further if you'll just talk about it. Like, I know. and then now we're, you know, in the world of texting and and kind of hiding behind our screens. When oftentimes it's like another thing too, like when it comes to communication and finding someone's why and why they're doing certain things, that, so that you can help them. Is that if you don't like this, we can see each other's body language. Right. But in a text. I could text you, hey, how are you doing today? And you could literally read it as, how are you doing today? You know, because oh, of what's going on with yourself. So I would say also is not only find out people's why and their origin story, but do it in person. Do it, you know, do it in a conversation. Which is something this generation needs to be. Yeah. I'll say when you go your gym experience, when you're doing those workouts, the fact in your partner interval training that, mm -hmm. that you do, you always have a partner there. Yep. You're always, you have to talk to somebody. You, have you, are, to. you actually have to have an engagement. Right. And, and I'd say, you know, certainly, you know, the trainers that you, you have very engaging. I mean, literally they're there to help you. I yes. mean, and they, they you, they'll just, and they do it in a really nice way that, that you find that they're very supportive, even for the low level athlete <laughs> I am in that, in that, in that. Well, class. we want to, we want a, a culture of accountability. And yeah. one of the things you look at, even from myself is that if you don't have someone that is waiting on you at the gym, that will spot you, that will change your change your weight, that will uh, wipe down the equipment, that will encourage you throughout the workout, then you're missing out a lot. And that's why you see oftentimes in these gyms where everybody has headphones on, everybody's staring at televisions, 
that they're not seeing a whole lot of progress. And then what happens is they, they, they fall off, right? Because there, there's no direction. So one thing that we're trying to do with legacy, and I wouldn't even say trying, we're, we're really doing is, is a, a place of accountability and a place where is as soon as you walk in, you're surrounded by a community of people that have the same mindset and goals. Like we're all here to improve ourselves. We're not just here to go through the motions. We're not just here to watch TV or listen to music. We're, we actually want to get better today, you know? So, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. How do you find these, these folks that work down there? I literally, I'm, I've been impressed with every single person I've met and it can't be that easy to find the right you know, chemistry for this place. You talking about how do I find my coaches? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, uh, I would say right now in the business world in general, cause I have a lot of friends that are in business, own restaurants, own right. car dealerships or whatever. And one of the toughest things is staff. I mean, that is finding. So what I believe is that we, we created an extraordinary business, extraordinary systems, but ultimately you have to find extraordinary people to deliver this this thing that you built right yes. and so it's what we've done is we've enhanced our hiring process so what i mean by that is i really think it's very important for them to go through a sequence of people so not just me so it used to be they would sit with me and then of course i like everybody so i'd be like you're hired and then then three weeks later it wouldn't work out and then i had like I literally for the when I first opened, I went through 19 trainers in like three months. Like it was a disaster um, because I just hired the wrong people constantly. Now we're a lot more mature in our in our hiring process. So not only do they go through a series of interviews, then we have a series of questions and they're a lot more practical questions, not necessarily business questions. So they're like, what time do you wake up every morning? What's the last book you've read? Um, what, what do you eat? Like just trying to get a little bit deeper into, again, their origin, like, and, and also like who they are now. So who are you now before you get the job? Because if you're going to have to change everything to be good at this job, it's probably not going to work out. But if your lifestyle and your routine, actually our job, your, your, your position would complement that and just be a nice fit then then normally it works out. So if I'm interviewing somebody and they're like, oh, I wake up at 10 o'clock every day, then I'm like, yeah, that's not gonna work because the fitness industry is 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. It's, it's, it's early, early mornings and it's late evenings. That's the fitness business. You can't get right. around it. Right. There is no like sleep in and have a conquer the middle of the day. There's no such thing as that in the <laughs> fitness world. No, It's either dominate the mornings or dominate the evenings. And most of the time, if you want to be really successful, you got to dominate both. Right. And I think that's been like my gift is that I've always been able to figure that out is to be great in the mornings and great in the evenings. And we do that really well with legacy because we have the four to five location, uh, excuse me, the four to five classes in the morning and then the four to five classes in the evening. So it gives gives people that option. I would say another thing too is we make them take a class first and then we actually pair them up with a member and and then we ask secretly ask the member how how was wow. your experience. Wow. So that's another like, you know, I'm letting all our secrets out right now. And then also I get feedback from the instructor. So now I'm getting feedback from the the existing coach. Did they give up on certain things? Did they push through? Did they were they a good partner? That's another thing too, like 
there are good partners and bad partners, right? In the class, some people like are into themselves, fixing their hair, looking in the mirror instead of spotting their partner and motivating their partner. So a coach should be a motivator, should be someone that participates, not spectates. So I look for that. We ask those questions. So the coach is also paying attention to how they're performing in the class, how they're treating their partner. Then we ask their partner, what did you think? You know, uh, was it a good partner? And oftentimes I'm telling you, it's, it's, they lose the job right there. Like sometimes I've had them do great interviews. Then they take the class and the instructor says they weren't engaged. They didn't help their partner. They were rude. They were all about themselves. Like I'll give you one example. We had this guy, he knocked, he knocked the interview out. His resume, exercise science, kinesiology, masters in biomechanics, you know, the whole nine. This guy is doing handstands in between the stations and flexing in the mirror in between the stations instead of being a good partner. Red flag, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, okay, obviously there's too much ego there. That's not gonna happen. So I would say that. And then I would say this, probably the reason why um, you're having a good experience is because of what we do after we hire them. So there's a strategic onboarding process. Number one, they have to memorize the training manual. Not not read it. And I've but, seen your training manual. Yeah. It's a lot to it. It's that, a lot to it. It's a lot to it. And it, and it took six years to develop that training manual. So Some of that I could have used with my Salesforce back in New York. Yeah. I think, I mean, Adam and I talk about it all the time. We're going to definitely make one for the Bev company for sure. So should, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, that, that training manual is a lot of books. Like I, I'm a big reader and it's a lot of, of stuff that I learned and put it in there. And so we make them read and learn and know the training manual. That's first and foremost. Then they have to train with our existing staff. So they have to, um, we got away from calling it, we used to call it shadowing, but then it, it wasn't as, uh, as proactive as we liked. So we changed it to their training, but they're training with existing coaches and they're doing it at all six locations. So they're really being able to soak up the good and the bad from all locations and, and seeing because and initially you're learning a system, but then also you're learning, I, we call it, you're an intra-trainer, right? You're not just a trainer. You're almost like a, an entertainer too. You're on stage every day. You have a microphone and you're, 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 you're putting on a performance. So it's really nice for them to see how all the different coaches, you know, the different jokes they say or different cues they say or different things they say. Everybody does it in a different way and finds their own voice. And so that's important. I think um, also too, I have required reading. So there's a lot of books and I don't think a whole lot of companies do this, especially gyms. Yeah, probably and, not. You know, and I, and I always get a lot of pushback because you know, we, it's a long list. <laughs> and so they're like, I gotta read all these books. But I will say this, every single time they actually do it, they always tell me how much it means to them and how much they apply it in their job. You right. know, like they actually are taking this stuff and then applying it. And then I, you know, I often have to remind them or whatever. But I will say this, there's no perfect science. We, we mess up all the time. We have people that start out great and then fall off. But I think it's our ability of making people feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And I would like to think that I'm doing a good job of like making sure people know this ain't about me. This is about legacy. This is about no days off. This is about a movement that goes beyond the gym walls, beyond a product, beyond a service, beyond one class, beyond anything. It's literally something that we are 
coaching and teaching people that they can implement into their relationships, into their business. And that's what's happening. And it's really cool to hear our members talk about no days off just like we do. And so there, it's an extension of my voice and an extension of the other coaches' voice that that is pouring into this community over 2,000 people and, and it's growing every day. That's great. No, that's great. I mean, the, one of the hardest things is finding the right people that you can work with and that make your business better and that really want to be part of it. And I think you've accomplished that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, dad. So let's, let's get into little dad stuff here because I'm a new dad. I have a three-year-old son. And again, I just want to salute you. I, I'm telling you, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. I don't want to give your wife all the, all the, all the, uh, the accolades, but I know you had something to do with it. And I think that I would just love to hear like, how did they turn out so amazing? Because they both are. And can you look back and say, these are the things that I did that, that kind of, um, helped solidify, you know, coming up with, look, I think that part <laughs> of it is like my, my job required me. I'd get up on Monday morning and I was out a lot at night. So I didn't get a chance to see the kids a whole lot during the week, but I spent every part of the weekends with them. Yeah. And whenever I could, I really tried to set an example for them, let them try and figure out what they're good at, encourage them on things they should try more, always be supportive, right? I mean, everyone's got their own, as I said, origin story and what their parents did right and wrong with them. Right. My goal every day was to try not to do something that my kids would ever complain about later. So you know what? You Empowering your kids through through encouragement and knowing when and how to compliment, criticize, and you know, and, and when you do criticize, you know, criticize in a in a productive way, right? Yeah. Like my parents think, called it uh, uh, cr uh, what's the word? Um, constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. That's what my, and, my, my mom used to always say. <laughs> and I think you know, our kids were we were very lucky. Um, they had a great experience growing up. You listen to my daughter at one point. You know, she wanted to change schools. And, you know, Mary and I would spend time and we talk about it. We had different opinions. And Hillary ultimately chose what was an enormously positive experience. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it put her on a path to be the woman she is today. And I couldn't be more proud of the business she started and yeah. the, the passion that she brings to- Shout her. out to the Soto Method. Yeah, shout out to that Soto Method. Um, I think she's tremendous. It was really fun sitting with her and talking. And then you can just, the passion she has for yeah. what she does and the way she communicates is on a, on another level. Oh, like well, she she was, is one of the top communicators I've ever spoken she to. She was that way as a child. When she was three yeah. years old, we were on Nantucket. I think Mary had gone inside to get ice cream or something for us. And we're just sitting there and there's all these adults just hanging on benches and what have you. And Hillary looked at them all and said, why don't we all just sing the ABCs? And she just got this whole group of adults to do that. And I always felt her superpower <laughs> was, if she knew what she was talking about at the age of 10, you could have put her in Yankee Stadium and give a speech and she wouldn't have blinked an eye. Yeah, yeah. And my son, different person, went the same path school-wise, decided he didn't want to do that, right? So he came back and graduated you know, high school in, in Westport. And I, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll give you another story here that hopefully it's it, it's interesting and it'll tell you about the character of my son. And I really, to me, this is one of the most amazing things that 
that I could say about somebody. He's just, first of all, the kid doesn't know how to lie. He wouldn't know how to. <laughs> and that led to this following sort of way of thinking about it. My son was a, a recruited athlete out of high school. Yeah. He decided one year he was going to run track. And, you know, in the, the FCX, which is the county that we're in, came in third in the 100 and the 200. You know, I knew he was fast, but I didn't know he was no, that fast. Yeah. And he went on one official recruiting visit to, you know, a, a well-known school. And, you know, he had asked some questions the night before about, you know, could I play rec basketball? No. Can you do this? No. What are practice schedules like? Blah, blah, blah. And the next day at his interview with the coach, the coach says to him, why don't you apply early decision? Okay. That's basically an invitation. Yeah. Right. On the way home, we started talking about it. He started going through the pros and cons of playing college sports in track. The only positive he could come up with to run track was he'd get a brand new pair of sneakers every month. <laughs> and he said, the rest of it will just ruin my high school experience. Or, I mean, my college experience. Yeah. All right. So roll now we roll forward a little bit. Remember the college rec recruiting scandal where people put down sports yeah. right, to get in and the kid never played anything? Right. right. And people paid hundreds, if not millions of dollars to get their kids in. My son decided since he didn't want to play, he wasn't going to use sports as a way of getting into a school and then going to have to tell the coach he wasn't going to do it. Right. All right, so he didn't apply to an early decision school that recruited him. He applied to another school in the same conference that he would have waltzed on, never told the coach at anything about whether or not he would get there. He applied to Syracuse. His time in the 200 in high school would have put him third on the varsity team at Syracuse on the 200. And he didn't even tell Syracuse that you know he was a track. Nothing, nothing that would help his chances because he wasn't going to live up to it. I don't think there are too many kids that would have the character to sort of stay true to that. Right. And just, and just follow. Where did he end up going to college? He went to Indiana University. Oh, okay. Right. So you know what? And what year is he now? Dave's 29 now. Oh, okay. So he's graduated and, and, it, and where is he living? New York? He's living in Williamsburg in New York. Okay. And uh, working in finance. So yeah. we followed dad into the finance field. Um, I do think that, you know, your kids, even Hillary, as she mentioned, you know, she started at Goldman Sachs. She ended at Oak Tree. You know, so everyone went down the path of finance and then right. really realized that wasn't her calling and decided to go into the fit fitness business just like you did. Yeah. And, you know, your kids will find their own path. One piece of advice I'll, I will give you, uh, Adam, you can take this too. When your kids get to a certain age, um, you have to really recognize are your, when your child asks you for something, are they asking you for support or advice? And if you screw it up, you might regret it. <laughs> Right. Right. Because if you give advice and all they want is support, you gotta you gotta know that. That's difference. a good one. That's a good one. Right. Any any uh secrets on how to determine that? <laughs> ask. Yeah. If you don't know which is the one, just ask. Look, yeah. Hillary, again, one last story with Hillary. Um, when she went to take one of the jobs that she didn't like um between Oak Tree and and Goldman, um, I had done some diligence on some of the people that she was gonna go work with and it didn't come out great. Um, but I didn't tell her. Yeah. Like she was going to make this choice. And afterwards, when she realized she didn't enjoy this job, and I, I asked her then, should I have told you what I knew? And she goes, no, dad, I'm old enough to make my own choices and my own bad decisions. Yeah. So you know what? You, you know, you, you go through your whole life and you do all these things for your kids. The one thing you know when you try and protect them from everything is you got to make sure they know how to make choices on their own. Right, right. Right. That's really good. Right. All right. So one of the reasons why you're here is because we're, we're, 
launching a new beverage business and uh, you're getting involved, which uh, we're tremendously uh, ecstatic about. You retired and now you're diving into a new venture. What uh, what excites you about about this this uh, consumer brand building that we're doing? Well, first of all, the water is just amazing to taste and drink. I mean, you've you've whatever formula that you have you have mastered. I this water holds its own against every other water I've ever had, if not better than all of them. Yeah, um, it's good for you. And as you always say, we're seventy-five percent water. Let's put the best water in our bodies. One hundred percent. And let's and let's do the right thing because as you have said a million times too, we're underhydrated as as a people. Yes. And you know, staying hydrated is important. So it's a brand too. You've developed these cans. They're great to hold. They're great to look at. I have yet to put a can in anyone's hand that doesn't say. Wow, I really love the way this looks. This is about branding. There's a million different waters. We're trying to get people to spend money on something that basically is free. Right. Right. So what do we do first? We make a better water. Then we deliver it in a really cool way. We make people enjoy holding the can. Yeah. And then we build the brand by affiliating with the right other people that can help build a brand. Branding is so important, right? I'll tell you something. It goes to something that we talked about before about investing, like. Warren Buffett built brands. Warren Buffett recognized that American Express, the Coca-Cola, these were brands that people would pay a premium for. Right. We're a premium water. So we're already at the point where we're going to sell water to someone who wants to spend a little bit more on a better product. Yep. Right. And when they do that and then they like it, then the value that accrues to them for being associated with it and having it is going to be really valuable to the building of this business. And I think you've started something that's just going to continue to grow. I think once people start seeing more of this as we as we grow this brand outside of South Florida, I think you're going to see a really powerful impact that it's going to have on people and I think it it's going to draw people in. And I think, you know, kudos to you and what you've done so far, and I can't wait to be part of what it's going to become and so I'm really excited to be to be part of this. So I appreciate you uh, letting me in, and yeah. I think we're all going to be—you know—we're going to all love being associated with this. And just like we talked about earlier, it's about discipline of how we're going to do it, right? And having the right time frame to understand how it's going to pay us back. Mm -hmm. And again, to quote like a Warren Buffett before, right? This compounding effect shows up in brands as well, right? right? You do the right thing, it expands. One fan gets two, two get four, four get eight. Right, it's an exponential build. I yep. think, like anything else, and I wanted to tell a story. And like Adam wanted me to talk about this, so I also have taught finance um, as part of my my journey. And one of the stories I like to tell people about, and I also do a lot of um, volunteer work to teach people about financial literacy. Okay. So I truly believe, by the way, that I can teach anyone to be a millionaire. I, I actually believe I can if I yeah. get you early enough, because this power of compounding and turning. A dollar into more than a dollar is really powerful when you pick the right investment. So, yeah. just to give two two stories here, I start off with people and say, "Can you save two thousand dollars a year?" Right? When a you're year. 20, two thousand dollars a year. Can you save it? Okay. All right. If you can do two thousand dollars a year and you put it in your mattress, right? In forty years, you have eighty grand. If I invest that money in the stock market, okay, and I do that for forty years. And the stock market returns have historically been about 8%. Um, and some people would argue it's even higher, but let's just stick with eight. And I put my money in the stock market and I follow the Warren Buffett idea that, you know, you just let your money work for you while you're sleeping, mm -hmm. right? After 40 years, instead of 80 grand, 
I have over 500,000. And if I can really push your limits and say, can you save $4,000 a year for 40 years at 8%, you end up with over a million dollars in 40 years. So am I asking for heroics? You have to have some discipline to save money and you gotta teach people that that's a really important thing to right. do. And you really will be able to make money work for you. And I think that's a really important thing that, that kids have to learn. And the last story that goes along with that, I always like to do this one because uh, it really resonates because you can think about it and hold it in your hand. So in June of 2007, Apple released their first uh, iPhone. If you got the highest memory phone, you had, uh, you paid $599, okay? Instead of buying that phone, had you invested in Apple stock, Today, you would, have owned, you would own 137 shares of Apple stock, which would be worth 40 times that money that you put in. So That's wild. Legitimately, for people that love math and they know I like to think about internal rate of return, that's a 27% IRR on Apple stock since the iPhone was released. You know what? Money can work for you if you're right. smart about it. Yeah.